And I believe you'll find your handouts on the middle of your page. And uh, let me pray for us as we uh, come to our text this morning. Father, we are grateful for your word and we thank you for the truth that you have entrusted to us, that you would reveal to us the secrets of your kingdom and, and allow us to understand all of these great mysteries of Jesus's ministry. And so would we hear the same Jesus teaching and instructing us today that by his spirit we might be led in his way and know what it is to be his disciples. So give us your help this morning as we come to your word. We ask in Jesus name. Amen. We are in the middle of Mark chapter 4, which is entirely devoted to Jesus' teachings on the kingdom. And Jesus devotes this entire uh, chapter uh, in his own teaching, the three parables about the kingdom, because there was a great misunderstanding about what it meant for him to be Israel's king and for what it meant for him to be the king of all the nations. And so Jesus had to clarify several issues. And As you think about it, as it develops, as where you have been in Mark so far, Jesus comes onto the scene announcing that the kingdom of God has drawn near and he begins healing people, people with leprosy, people who were blind. And we see marvelous signs of the kingdom. But we also find that some were not believing that they were rejecting this Jesus. And uh, this includes his family. It includes the religious um, Uh, institution of the day, the scribes and the Pharisees. And so Jesus was not being accepted. And so we have to ask the question, you know, why was Jesus, um, if he was doing these miraculous signs, he was teaching that the kingdom of God had drawn near. Why was he being uh, rejected also? And the basic fault line uh, was clearly illustrated for me recently at a wedding rehearsal dinner that I went to because it's all about where your focus is. And uh, this is just the main difference between men and women when it comes to thinking about a marriage. Um, One of my good friends was uh, was getting married and and at the the wedding rehearsal, um, he stood up at the end to say some very nice things to all the people in the room. And uh, as he went around saying things, it came time for him to close the night uh, saying goodbye to his bride to be. And, uh, And he said some very complimentary things about her character and how he was looking forward um, to the coming day. And in that process of talking about the coming day, he said, and I just can't wait for the consummation of our of our marriage. And it was just this awkward moment of of uh, of deafening silence. And um, because everyone knew that he meant consecration and uh, (laughs) the best look of all being the bride just you know, what has just happened? And, and he ended it famously by just saying, thank you and good night, you know. And, um, but the, the issue of focus is key. Males typically are thinking about that event over the consummation. Um, and, and that was much the Jewish misunderstanding uh, because the emphasis in their teachings about the kingdom of God were all focused on consummation. And Jesus is going to develop these ideas of his kingdom in a different way. And that's what we're going to be walking through today as we look at several parables, two parables specifically, and that Jesus teaches us about his kingdom. So uh, let's read our text, Mark 4, verses 26 through 34. Hear God's word. He also said, this is what the kingdom of God is like. A man scatters seed on the ground night and day, whether he sleeps or gets up, the seed sprouts and grows, though he does not know how. All by itself, the soil produces grain, first the stalk, then the head and then the full kernel in the head. 
As soon as the grain is ripe, he puts the sickle to it because the harvest has come. Again, he said, what shall we say the kingdom of God is like? Or what parable shall we use to describe it? It is like a mustard seed, which is the smallest seed you plant in the ground. Yet when planted, it grows and becomes the largest of all garden plants with such big branches that the birds of the air can perch in its shade. With many similar parables, Jesus spoke the word to them as much as they could understand. He did not say anything to them without using a parable. But when he was alone with his own disciples, he explained everything. In 1954, a man named J.B. Phillips uh, published a very important book. And the book was entitled, Your God is Too Small. It's a very winsomely written short book that can fit in your pocket that has helped many Christians over, many, over several decades now. It's been reprinted seven or eight times. And uh, Phillips is just developing this idea that we tend to put parameters on God and how he operates in our world and that we do confine him, that we create a God who is less than who he actually is. The irony of this very helpful book is that that title could have been used by a first century rabbi as a critique of the movement called Christianity. That a first century rabbi very feasibly could have written a book entitled Your God is Too Small. That that was a readily available critique of Jesus and his teachings about his kingdom. Because there is a significant problem with Jesus' teachings, apparently, on the surface. And the problem with Jesus and the kingdom is that when Jesus uses the language about the coming kingdom of God, that this language was associated with the dramatic end of the world. The coming of the kingdom marks the great drama of the end of the world. And so when a, when a first century Jewish boy or girl heard a Jewish rabbi speaking the language of the kingdom of God, they had several um, expectations come to mind. And we're going to talk about two of those expectations this morning. The first of those is vindication. When they heard this word, the coming kingdom of God, they began to get very excited because what this indicated was that God was once again returning to Israel in order to vindicate her, that he would bring two things, judgment and salvation. Now, these two themes may not seem to belong together in our minds, but in the world of the Old Testament and also in what literature we call this, uh, the literature of the second temple, the themes of judgment and salvation were married together. They belong together. Whenever you thought of God bringing salvation for his people, you also thought of him intervening on those who did not belong to him. And you find this in the Psalms. If you look at Psalm 14 or Psalm 86, all throughout, you'll see these two ideas of God. You come and deliver me and have your way with those who are opposed. OK, so judgment and salvation being married together. And so when they heard the language of the kingdom, they were thinking vindication that God was now coming to save his people, Israel, and he was coming to judge those unbelievers in Israel and outside. So this was climatic language. And um, and then the second, secondly, what the, this language of the coming of the kingdom communicated was this notion of restoration. And that the Jewish thought that when God returned to work with Israel to save her, to deliver her from the nations, that he was also going to restore her. 
You see, when they thought about the end of the world, they didn't think about a cosmic meltdown and then just being delivered off into a kind of a spiritual uh, theme park in the sky. That wasn't the notion of what heaven was to be. But what heaven was going to be was life in a physical world that had been remade and recreated. That God would regain the creation that had been lost in the curse of sin. And that he would then redo all things, including human beings, and make the world right. And so this notion that God's judgment and salvation would issue into restoration and all of this would happen in an immediate consummation was what most first century Jews believed. And Jesus comes onto the scene declaring that the kingdom of God has drawn near. What do you think most people were asking? The problem was, well, where's the vindication? Where's the restoration? What kind of king exactly are you? You say that sins are forgiven and yet I still feel pretty guilty. You say that sin is destroyed, but sin sin still seems to reign. You say that you're the king of the nations, yet Rome still rules over Israel. There were a ton of questions. And for most of Jesus's contemporaries, they would have thought that his vision of the kingdom was just too small. Why would I want to buy into this? And so that was the critique. And that was the critique Jesus had to deal with, because it was the critique of unbelievers. But also what we learn from the Gospels is that this was also in the mind of Jesus's disciples. See, these unbelievers and the disciples both were cultural creatures and they inherited these expectations of the kingdom. And what they were doing is similar to what we do today, just applying these cultural expectations to God. And what people tend to do is that they have these cultural expectations of who God is or what God is like. And that they then apply that to how God, how how the Bible presents Jesus, and they determine whether they can believe in that Jesus or not. And so the people who believe that this kingdom had to be immediately consummated in vindication and restoration, that they then began looking at the ministry of Jesus and they said, well, this is this doesn't match. Reality doesn't match up. And so they would dismiss Jesus and his claim to be Israel's king, his claim to be the king of all the nations. And people do the same thing today, that we have cultural expectations. Some of the strongest ones operating in our culture about who God is and what he's like. Um, there's been some very recent studies done by, um, by Time magazine. And they were asking Americans just how they viewed God. And the phenomenal thing was that over 70% of people now understand God to be a loving and at least loving and beneficent who does not have a critical stance towards human beings. That God might judge the really, really bad ones, but overall, he's either loving and kind or he's not involved. You know, over two thirds of Americans believe that. And so what we find in our culture is that people bring those expectations that this is who Jesus can be. And when they find Jesus contradicting that picture, that they dismiss him. That they have to because it doesn't fit into their parameters. It doesn't fit into their preset definitions. And that doesn't just happen outside of the church. Guys, that that happens also inside the church. That we bring our own preconditions. We bring our own parameters. And the challenge for us is not to tame Jesus in this way. 
Because we have to let him get outside of our expectations. We have to let him be free to define himself to us. And so there is a great call to us just to be very open as we come. And in dealing with unbelievers, it's very important for us to recognize this this point, too, because, you know, we can argue the facts of the faith with someone who doesn't believe. But if they already have some presuppositions, some preset beliefs about who Jesus can be, it's going to be very difficult convincing them of the facts. In fact, the most helpful thing might be to get inside of those preset beliefs and to ask them, does that really hold together? Because you have to destroy those first if you're ever to get to the heart of the issues about who Jesus is. And so the call for all of us is to not tame Jesus with our cultural expectations. This is what the first century Jews did, and this is what people continue to do today. It's what Jesus' disciples did. The challenge for us is to let Jesus define himself to us, to let him tell us who he is, and that we have to come in a posture of seeking and a posture of humility. And so uh, that's how we come to him. And, uh, and this is important for us to recognize about the disciples um, because they had been entrusted with the mysteries of the kingdom. If you remember the phrase from last week that Sandy discussed with you, that the disciples were entrusted with all the secrets of the kingdom. They were they had this re-education process after every parable and they got to pull away with Jesus. And all of us have to wonder what that had to be like when Jesus got to explain everything that he had just taught. And the thing is, as this gospel develops, when you get all the way to chapter eight, the disciples still are not getting it. And uh, Mark tells the story with a lot of humor because the demons are confessing that Jesus is the son of God in chapter one. And Peter is not confessing that Jesus is the son of God until chapter eight. <laughs> and the disciples were just slow and backwards and they were slow of heart to believe and they were struggling. And so this is a call to us to be humble. Oftentimes when we're inside of the church and we've been inside of its walls for some time, we become rather crusty and uh, and we can get rather belligerent in our beliefs. And it's not that anything we believe is not true. It's not that we're not certain about it, but we all have to recognize that we are continuing to learn from Jesus and that there is an appropriate level of humility that comes with our beliefs. And so we need to recognize we're in the place of these disciples who blunder along at times and get things wrong and who Jesus is continually, patiently correcting and teaching and leading in understanding his identity and his mission. And so that's uh, the second thing there. The coming of the kingdom in Jesus is thoroughly underwhelming for many. They just didn't find the kingdom that great because the vindication and the restoration simply were not there. And we have to make sure that our cultural expectations are not taming who Jesus is. Now, Jesus is going to go to work. Because the entire point of the two parables he tells is to answer these questions about the kingdom. And he tells two very simple stories. Sandy did a really good job explaining the nature of parables last week. That parables reveal things and they also conceal things. That they serve that double function. And a parable is somewhat like a political cartoon. If you've uh, ever, you know, if you've ever into reading those, they can be quite hilarious if you understand the characters and how the, the images are being used. Uh, when I was a, um, a junior in college, we had this really wonderful uh, cartoonist on campus. And uh, he just had some of the most classic moments that all of my friends who I graduated with, they still remember. And, uh, and one of the great cartoons that he drew was uh, that year the administration had decided that our spring break was going to run from a Wednesday to a Wednesday. And 
you know, we were all ticked off because it, it shortened the time significantly. It was seven days instead of ten. We didn't have two weekends. And we had been complaining to the administration and they shot back and they didn't publish it until late. It was, pretty, it was really rotten. And, uh, and so Jason Combs, he captured the moment for all of us. He drew a picture of a sandwich and he had the bread in the middle and the, the turkey on the top and then the, the lettuce and tomato on the bottom. And then he just wrote underneath it, spring break. And uh, it was just perfect, you know, and you all get the point, you know, that the real <laughs> that the sandwich was just reversed, that we really needed two weekends. And when Jesus tells a parable, it functions in that same way that he's drawing near to our understanding not everyone will understand, but it will bring a significant amount of revelation and significant amount of understanding of the situation that's going on around him when we have ears to hear. And so Jesus tells these two parables, one about the sower who sows seed and one about uh, the mustard seed, that the mustard seed being sown and grows into a great plant. And so this is how Jesus is going to tackle these objections uh, to his uh, to his kingdom. And at first, he's going to say this in verses 26 and 31. What we're going to see is that the kingdom has been planted in Jesus's ministry. The kingdom has been planted in Jesus's ministry. Very important that when Jesus arrives on the scene and begins announcing that the kingdom of God has drawn near, he says, repent and believe in the gospel. OK, and Jesus, what his understanding is, is that in his arrival, that the kingdom of God has been manifested, that there has been a real planting. And this is what these parables communicate. When Jesus says the seed has been planted, he's talking about a definite historical event or he's referring to a definite historical event. And the seed being the word of God, that the word has been planted. And though the full reality does not exist yet. If you think about an acorn and an oak tree, that is the proper analogy here, that something has really been planted and the full potentiality of the kingdom of God rests in that seed that was planted in Jesus's ministry, that something definitively has happened and that that can never be changed. And on your outlines here, we just said, though not overtly apparent, the kingdom is present. It is like a seed hidden in the ground. It seems insignificant. But all the future yield of the kingdom lies in the planted seed. That Jesus, when he comes, he doesn't come just as another teacher. He doesn't come with just good moral advice, but he comes to change the world. And that in some partial ways, what Jesus is explaining here is that salvation and restoration have arrived. That the kingdom of God has been planted. And so you who think that salvation and restoration have not come significantly enough, you need to look again, because what were Jesus's healings about? What was Jesus forgiveness of sins about? It was about salvation. His healings about were about the restoration of creation. And that there was a picture. There was an experience of the salvation that had been promised. It was already here. And Jesus is going to qualify that in a moment as we work on down through the parable. But the bottom line is that there are to be two responses to this planting of the kingdom, to the kingdom being sown in our midst. And those are found back in the first chapter of Mark in verse 15. 
to repent and believe. Now, it's important for us to talk about those two concepts of what it means to repent and believe. And so repentance. Oftentimes in uh, a southern culture, we tend to associate repentance with an apology, just a general statement of I'm sorry. And while that is definitely part of repentance, uh, this this word that comes to us out of of the ancient culture means something more like a U-turn. It doesn't just mean an apology, but it means a drastic change in the direction of life. And so if we're to really repent, it means to turn. And Jesus gives us this command to repent. That's an imperative verb there. He gives us the command to repent in the concept of understanding the kingdom. In other words, we're repenting of a life that was lived as if Jesus was not king. And we're turning from that. And we now turn to live a life as if Jesus is on his throne. That that's what it means to repent. is to enter into a new kingdom and to establish a new way of life according to a new set of rules. And so uh, that is the nature of repentance. And, uh, and this is what one commentator writes about parables and how they promote repentance. He says, to understand a parable is, uh, is usually to be changed, or at least challenged to change, not just enlightened. And it's very important for us to think about that a parable is not just meant to enlighten us and to give us some new knowledge and some more facts about God. But it's meant to revolutionize us. It's just like my friend Jason Combs in the political cartoon he drew. He wanted to start somewhat of a revolt on campus to get everyone really exercised about how we were just getting hosed on spring break. And he was very right. And you know, next year, Jason Combs was successful. Spring break back went back to two weekends and we all praised him for it. And any future paladin should praise him for it as well. But there was meant to be change. That's the purpose of a parable. And that's Jesus's purpose in speaking of the kingdom is he is promoting change in his declaration of the gospel. He's promoting change that he wants to bring repentance where there is a real U-turn and a turn of life where we come and live under our king and follow his way of life. Now, what is so challenging about that is that Jesus's way of life is all upside down to us. And you're going to get plenty of opportunities to hear about that way throughout the gospel of Mark. When he talks about if you want to gain power, you have to lose it. If you want to be great, you have to become the least. If you want to be first, you have to be last. And he's going to overturn every cultural expectation we have. But that's what it means to repent is to walk in his way. And secondly, Jesus says that we have to believe. Now, when we think about belief, um, oftentimes in our culture, we think of agreement or assent. The nod of a head that, yes, that's true. And that is definitely part of what it means to believe. But, you know, in raising uh, young boys, I found that there's a difference between belief and agreement. Because oftentimes there's great agreement between us. But there is no belief in what I said. You know, for instance, last night we were um, up. Bedtime is at 730 and we were still up at 10 um, arguing. (laughs) It's amazing that you can argue with a three year old. Uh, arguing about what was going to happen if he got out of bed again and um, that there were going to be consequences for this action. And uh, and Sim, do you understand that that if you get out of bed again, you're going to be spanked? 
Yes. Okay, I want you to go back to bed. And, uh, and so, you know, ten minutes later, he's back. And, um, and normally I have the willpower to, you know, to, to break out what we call beetle at that point. Um, but it was so cute, you know, it was just breaking my heart to think about spanking because he was saying, Daddy, I want to come snuggle with you, which is, you know, one of your favorite things to do. And, uh, and I asked him the question. I said, did you understand what Daddy said about if you got out of bed again? Yes. <laughs> so he could agree with me. But he absolutely did not believe there was going to be any follow through. And, uh, you know, and that's the way it is with the gospel, too. There can be agreement, but not real belief. Because belief is is quite more than that. And it's more this idea of trusting in a future state of affairs in the present. Think about it. Jesus was proclaiming the kingdom and he compares it to a seed. A very small seed, in fact, the mustard seed was the smallest amongst all seeds that would have been used in a common garden. And that seed is hidden in the ground. And if no one knew the seed was there, they could trample all over it. They would find it quite insignificant. They would disrespect it. And that's how Jesus says his kingdom starts. And so for many of those in the first century who were looking for this immediate consummation that involved vindication and restoration... These grand themes all culminating at one point. Jesus was saying, no, you got it completely wrong. That the kingdom starts as a small seed. It's not apparent to all. It's quite insignificant to many. But those who would enter into the kingdom would be those who have faith. Who trust that from that small seed that something great is going to grow. And guys, this is challenging for us. Because we would not invest our money in an enterprise like this. If this was a strategic plan, you would chuckle at it. (laughs) That salvation of the world is going to come through a Galilean peasant. And that the nations are going to be drawn to this great king. Unlikely. (laughs) And that is what Jesus is asking us to believe. That from unlikely beginnings, something great is going to come. And that's the challenge of faith. And that as we believe and as we trust, not simply agreeing, but really trusting ourselves to this message. That there's going to be a future out of unlikely beginnings. That we also take a U-turn in our lives and begin to follow this Jesus in his way. And so that's the challenge for us as we look at as we talk about the sower and the seed and the idea that Jesus's kingdom has truly been planted. Now, the second thing that we're going to look at is that the kingdom mysteriously grows as it matures towards harvest. We see this in both of the parables. If you look in verse 28, it describes this process of growth. It says, all by itself, the soil produces grain. First the stalk, then the head, then the full kernel in the head. Then if you look in verse 32, it says, yet when planted, it grows and becomes the largest of all garden plants with such big branches that the birds of the air can perch in its shade. Now, many scholars say that uh, these parables focus purely on the beginning and the end. But what is clear is that there is a process of organic growth and development in between that beginning and the end. And that Jesus is concerned about this stage in his kingdom. And he's saying that there is going to be a delay between the initial planting and the harvesting. And this is crucial for his disciples to understand 
Because if they're looking for an immediate vindication, they're going to be disappointed all their lives. They're going to be extremely disappointed. And Jesus is here explaining that there is going to be a maturity process to the kingdom. That it already has been planted. That in some partial ways, salvation and restoration have broken into the world. But there is going to be this delay before a final and great consummation. If you want to work back to the marriage analogy, I guess this would be like the, um, the wedding party, the reception. <laughs> you know, this is the delay between inauguration at the wedding ceremony and the consummation at, afterwards. Okay? And this is the period that the church now lives in. That we live in what people call the time between the times. Between Jesus' planting of the kingdom and between his consummation of the kingdom when he returns to make all things right. And Jesus has to explain this over and over. In fact, our passage tells us that in many parables like this, Jesus continued on teaching the crowds. Because this is how strong those cultural expectations for vindication and restoration immediately were held. And so he has to continually teach and instruct. And so this is what we, how, where we are living. We are living uh, as the kingdom is maturing, as it is growing. And I put here for your sheet... Though the main focus of the parables is on the sowing and the harvesting, a history exists between the two. And speaking of this growth, Jesus alludes to Daniel 4.21, indicating a worldwide dominion. Now, in verse 32, there is a very strange statement, and you might have caught on to that. That Jesus says that the mustard seed was to grow into a great plant, and that that great plant would become a, with big branches, would become a home for the birds of the air. Now, this is a strange allusion but it has a very powerful connotation. The illusion is this to Daniel 4, chapter, uh, Daniel chapter 4, verse 21. In this chapter, Daniel is speaking about Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom. And he says, King Nebuchadnezzar, you are like a great tree with big branches that all the birds of the air who are the nations of the world will gather to and find rest. And Jesus cleverly picks up on this theme. And what he's saying is nothing less than imperial. That he is saying this kingdom is going to grow and mature into a worldwide empire. It's going to grow from unlikely beginnings when many would trample on it and disrespect it. And many would argue with it and say things like your God is too small. But the mystery of this kingdom is that once it has been planted, an organic process has been started that cannot be stopped. That the train is already rolling and that this kingdom is going to be successful in growing and expanding into all the nations of the earth. And that all the empires of the earth, all the tribes and tongues, peoples of the world are going to find shelter in the branches of this small mustard seed that's grown into a great tree. And guys, that is what the period that we are living in. That's the period that we now inhabit where the kingdom is growing and expanding to encompass all the nations of the earth, where all of God's people from all over the world are being gathered in. And we have the opportunity to participate in that. That we have the opportunity to declare that there's another way to live. And that all the kings of this world, all the things that might bring meaning and significance to your life, that they're really empty and void. That there's one true king and there's one thing in this world that deserves your allegiance and your loyalty. And that is Jesus Christ, who's God's Messiah. 
And so we are calling everyone. Our role is to call everyone to a different way of living. It's a really great story, and we're not certain about the historicity of it. But it comes to us from England about Robin Hood, the legend of Robin Hood, which you're familiar with. And the story goes like this, that in the 12th century, there was a king named Richard who left England to go fight in the Crusades. During his absence, his brother, John, usurped the throne from Richard. And John was a very harsh man. And uh, he began enforcing heavy taxes on the people. And he also outlawed the peasants from hunting. Now, this was significant uh, then. It wasn't that they hunted for sport or to get how many birds they could, but they hunted for a living. And if you were at the bottom of the feudal system, if hunting was taken away from you, you were in trouble. Uh, so he outlawed uh, the peasants from hunting. And uh, so this was significant social problems going on. And uh, Robin Hood then takes his band and moves out to Sherwood Forest. And he begins to live in protest of King John, of the supposed King John. And he begins living like King Richard is still on the throne. And so they protest all that John does. They fight against um, his armies. They, they raid his supply houses. They don't pay taxes. They don't live as if John is truly king because they don't believe he is. And then there, becomes a mar- there comes a marvelous event. Where King Richard, the news comes that he has landed, that Richard has entered back into England, that he's back on the scene. And so Robin Hood and his associates, they begin whispering this message about. And they begin telling everyone in England that King Richard is back and he's soon to return and he will depose John. He will throw him from the throne and he will reinstitute what is right and good. And gentlemen, it's a wonderful parable for how it is to live as a servant of King Jesus. That we are whispering about the world, that there is another way, that there is another king, and that there has been a delay in his coming. And he is purposefully delaying so that people can repent and believe. But he will come. And though you might labor long under the kings of this world, You notice that the kings of this world are what steal life. They oppress you. And what Robin Hood found difficult was to convince people that King John was actually evil. They had gotten so accustomed to it that they'd forgotten what life was intended to be. And that is you and I's task, is to convince people of a better way, to convince people that life in God's kingdom under the rule of Jesus It's the true way of living as a human being, that this is how it's intended to be. And so we're just simply whispering this about. We do this in our proclamation, just our speaking of this mystery of the kingdom, that Jesus has come to restore the world and to make it right. And he has begun that already in the planting of his kingdom, and he continues it on as it grows. But one day it will soon come where it will be fully manifested and all things will be made right. We're telling that story to the world. And we see people converted and saved and we see that growing and you see this phenomena going on. Because as we study the church in the world, it's very clear that the center of Christendom is not in North America. There are more Christians in the country of Nigeria 
than there are in the UK, uh, uh, or there's more Christians in the Nigerian Anglican Church than there are Anglicans in the UK and the United States together. Isn't that amazing? <laughs> One country in the corner of Africa has more Anglican followers than the UK where it started and the United States. That the center of gravity has shifted and that Jesus is accomplishing what he said he was going to accomplish. That his kingdom is now welcoming in the birds of the air, that is the nations of the earth. And we get the chance to be a part of it. And so my encouragement to you and the challenge is, how are you participating in that? There's many ways. We can use our finances. We can use our time. We can use our talents. We can do things like the guys that are doing this, this morning who left us. And it's wonderful. And just how are you using the resources God has given you? How are you using your gifts to advance this mystery of the kingdom as it grows and matures because it's yours to participate in? And would you just be like Robin Hood? <laughs> would you declare a different way, a different order of life? And finally, what Jesus teaches us in these parables is that the kingdom will come in fullness at the final harvest. Now, we find this in verse 29. Jesus says, as soon as the grain is ripe, he puts the sickle to it because the harvest has come. And Jesus is here just speaking of that great final vindication where there comes restoration. See, because Jesus did not disagree with that first century view that the coming of the kingdom involved vindication and restoration. He simply expanded how he applied it. And he was saying the kingdom is planted. It is already. But the kingdom is also not yet. That there's still a future day to come. And that future day will be glorious. Because the kingdom, an inevitable process has been started. When the seed has been planted, it will now come to fruition. And the seed is coming to fruition. And that is the great hope of the Christian. And there's two things that Jesus would want us to learn from this. The first is that we are to be confident about this fruition that's coming. We're to be confident about this coming kingdom. It's not up for a vote. It's not up for grabs. It's not hypothetically possible that Jesus would return. Because Jesus planted the kingdom in his ministry on earth, it will return. Because you see that kingdom growing and maturing in the world, that's a sign that Jesus' kingdom will return. That it is surely going to happen. And the one thing in life that we're certain about, despite whatever else may be going on, where our hopes are really tied, they're not tied to any success of a political party. They're not tied to the success of a local ministry. They're not tied to our personal financial success. Our hopes are tied in one place, in one place alone. That is in Jesus Christ. And this is what we call an eschatology. It's just a, a theology of the end. And, uh, and I work here at Second with many people who are in their 20s who are single. And, uh, you know, the thing that I find so ironic is that their eschatology is marriage. They really do think that all their hopes and all their dreams are going to be satisfied when they get married. Now, it might be good to bring them here and we could bring a little more reality and, and perspective to things. Marriage is a wonderful institution. It is a great thing, but it's not going to fix you. <laughs> and I can pick on my group, but the bottom line is that all of us tend to place eschatological hopes 
in something in this life. And what Jesus wants to call us to is to place our real hopes and dreams in the world yet to come. That is not a spiritual theme park, but it's about God restoring this world and making it right. And sometimes we wonder why exactly it is that Christianity in our own culture seems to be kind of narcoleptic. Why it seems we're falling asleep at the wheel. And uh, and I would suggest it's because of this. It's because we've lost a real vision of what's to come. That we've been we've become quite persuaded that this is about as good as it gets, because the vision of heaven we've been giving is playing given is playing a harp for eternity. And uh, I'm sorry, guys, that's not too compelling for me. I do believe worship will be part of the eternal state, but the way that the Bible describes a new heavens and new earth is far more than floating on a cloud with a set of wings. That it's living in a newly created world where God has regained everything that he intended for his his people and that we would be installed and that we would walk with him in this world as Adam and Eve walked with God in the garden in the cool of the day and that we would have dominion over that world. God created human beings to be creative and industrious and they were to, uh, to go out into all the world and make it a garden. And that is what he is going to regain in, in uh, salvation, in the final salvation, in the consummation of all things. And when we gain a picture of the excelling greatness of what salvation is, and when that becomes something worth far more than this world, I think that's when we might be rescued from our narcolepsy, from our falling asleep at the wheel. But when we tie our eschatological hopes to this life and to this world and we can find little things to hope in, we're going to be quite sleepy. We're going to be really drowsy because this great vision that Jesus gives us, this great consummation is not going to be compelling us. So first, we're to have confidence that Jesus is going to bring about this kingdom. And secondly, that this kingdom vision is also to bring comfort. The other reason that we need a robust vision of the coming kingdom of God where it is all consummated and all things are made right, it's because presently it doesn't work out that we deal with significant disappointments, that we deal with our own personal sins, that we deal with the death of loved ones, that we deal with awful tragedies in our world, that we see gross injustices in our city, that we see all kinds of inequity and disparity And the thing that we have to take great comfort in as we experience all of this is that there is coming a day when it will be made right. And that is what Jesus is counseling us with. And, uh, you know, it's interesting because this gospel of Mark was most likely written to Christians who were living in Rome in about 60 A.D., 60, 64 A.D. And uh, we know from church history that this was an extremely tumultuous time in the city of Rome. And that Mark was writing this to secure the Christians in their following of Jesus. And he was writing it as a pastor to give them comfort. Because it was at this time that Nero, the emperor of Rome, was using the Christians as a scapegoat. He was blaming a great fire that had happened in the city on the Christians. And he was brutally torturing them. They were regularly taken into the Circus Maximus. And they were slaughtered by animals to the cheers of people. And they were often taken to Nero's dinner parties where they were soaked in oil and then crucified 
around the back patio and lit on fire to light the party. And I don't tell you these things to be gross, but those are just fact history. It's just facts of how brothers and sisters uh, were facing trials. And you can see why they needed a future hope and why they needed to understand that the kingdom is here. It is already. But the kingdom is also not yet. And so let's not get lulled off to sleep. Let's let the kingdom comfort us in this present place. To know that we have future hope and let it energize us. Let that future hope energize us to live in such a way that's compelling all of the world to come and live under the reign of our king. Because we know there is a, is a coming day where it will become very public and it will be manifested before all the nations of the earth that Jesus is king of kings and Lord of lords and everyone will know it. And might they gladly know it. Might all the nations of the earth gladly know it because of our proclamation of that kingdom and our demonstration of it. And so, friends, that is how Jesus explains that great dilemma that he faced in teaching the kingdom. He has to answer this question. How is it that vindication and restoration are not happening right now? And he answers it by saying that the kingdom has an initial stage, that it's surely been planted, that now it is maturing. And then when it is ripe, it will be harvested. This already and not yet, that salvation is here and that God would welcome us into that kingdom by faith and repentance. And that we can now live as subjects of the king, proclaiming and demonstrating his rule and hoping in that great and future day. And so, friends, may you leave with that hope. Let me pray to that end. Father, we do thank you for the vision of the kingdom of God and that though some would critique our vision and say that it is far too small, we know that that would be a misunderstanding. That you are accomplishing the great vision of the renewal of all things in a mysterious way through the preaching of the gospel. And so as we respond in faith and as we respond in repentance, may we know what it is to live out before the nations, rehearsing that great and final day. And so, Lord, fill us with hope. May we be comforted in our sufferings. May we be confident that you are returning and are returning soon. We hold fast to that and we wait patiently for Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen. Thank <laughs> you.